You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, Exodus chapter 34 is a crucial moment in Israel's history and in God's redemptive story because what you had up to this point was God establishing a group of people for himself, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the family of Israel, growing for over 400 years there in Egypt, delivered from their slavery in Egypt through the plagues and the leadership of Moses, brought into the wilderness and given a covenant and given a law as Moses went to Mount Sinai by himself to receive the law from God. But while Moses was receiving those commandments and receiving that law, the people of Israel were busily breaking the law that God was giving. And when Moses came down from the mountain and found the people of Israel worshiping at a golden calf, it was a crucial moment in their history. Of course, you know, from our study of Exodus 32 and 33, that Moses took the golden calf, crushed it, ground it to powder, made them drink of it, made them repent of their sin. God judged them swiftly in that moment. And in chapter 33, Moses prays for the people of Israel. He intercedes for them. He is unwilling to see God establish a new nation without them. He has an insatiable desire to see God's name glorified and honored throughout this world. What would the world think, Moses declares to God, if you were to judge your covenantal people in this kind of way? You need to please God, be gracious and merciful to them, fulfill your promises to them so that the world can know that you are a promise-keeping God. And so in chapter 34, God, who has already indicated that he would respond by keeping his covenant with the people of Israel, which of course he was planning on doing, God then here in chapter 34 will give Moses new stone tablets of the Decalogue, give him the Ten Commandments once again. Moses had taken the stone tablets and had broken them when he saw the worship of the golden calf. And then God is going to declare his name to Moses. You might remember that Moses had asked, God, show me your glory. God will show him his glory in the form of announcing his name to Moses. And then God is going to clarify a few stern commands regarding that covenantal relationship with God. So let's jump in here in verse 1. It says that the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke now this is a wonderful statement of God because obviously at first glance you have to recognize that it's so full of grace first of all he says you know cut yourself new tablets all write on them again because you broke the first tablets now Moses had broken them quite literally when he threw them to the ground, but figuratively the people of Israel had broken them before they even received them. They were breaking the law of God. And so 
God announcing to Moses that he would write them again and give them a fresh set of tablets speaks of the grace of God. And of course, on this side of the cross, we are swimming in the wonderful grace of God and his incredible mercy. But I also like that God says, I will write on the tablets. Now, I love that because later on in this chapter, in verse 27 and 28, we'll discover that Moses did the actual writing. But there's no contradiction because God says, I will write, and Moses writes. But the reality is, is that God is the author. Man is recording what God has spoken. And in that, we have a wonderful picture of the divinely inspired Word of God, that men of God were moved along by the Spirit of God to record the things of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. There were human beings that wrote it. There were human beings whose personalities and education showed up in the writing of it. But behind all of it, God himself is the author. And so God says to Moses, he says, be ready, verse 2, by morning and Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Now this is very similar to the first time that Moses received the law up on Mount Sinai with some slight variations. You know, the first time there were these restrictions, you know, that Moses had to go up to the mountain by himself and all of that. But the restrictions were a little bit looser on that occasion, notably concerning Aaron. Aaron could get a little bit closer than the people in the previous reception of the law, but here Aaron has to be removed from the scene, probably as a result of his leadership in allowing the people of Israel to go into their idolatry and actually building that golden calf for them. He's not even allowed to accompany his brother Moses part of the way this time as Moses climbs to Mount Sinai. There are consequences. God will forgive, but there are consequences to our actions. So Moses cut, verse 4, two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And so here we have this wonderfully holy moment where God reveals himself to Moses in a powerful way. Moses climbs up to the mountaintop in the morning and takes the two tablets of stone and the Lord is going to proclaim his name there on the mountaintop to Moses. I think there's a small little picture here for us concerning the importance of a personal devotional life. No, we have no new record that we're going to receive from God. But we need to freshly learn of the Lord. We need to freshly hear of his character. It needs to be fresh upon our hearts. And a lot of times, the way that we hear from the Lord, so to speak, is to rise early in the morning and climb that mountaintop of prayer. Get alone with the Lord and spend time in his presence 
hearing from him and sitting at his feet and allowing him to remind us through his word of his character and his nature and who he is. And this is the most important thing for a person to study. There is science. There are many sciences and studies throughout the world, but the study or the science or the knowledge of God is the highest knowledge that a person could ever acquire. There is nothing greater to study in all of the world than studying who God is, studying God himself. And so God begins to declare the name of the Lord, revealing his character to Moses. These next couple of phrases are essentially repeated in various places throughout the Old Testament. God self-disclosing himself to Moses and to his people. He says in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now this is fascinating. He begins with the phrase, the Lord, the Lord. In other words, by stating it twice, it's as if we're asking the question, who is the Lord? What kind of God is he? Is he going to be like the regional gods or the false gods of the Egyptians with mean spirits and brutal character? What kind of God will he be? How should we know this God, Israel might ask? What is his nature? What is his character? What is his disposition? And what follows is absolutely beautiful. We learn that God is merciful and gracious, that God is a God who bestows his unmerited favor on those who have no claim whatsoever upon it. And that's who God is from the beginning to the end and for all of eternity. God is a God who bestows his unmerited favor on those who have no claim whatsoever for it. He looks upon his people. He creates a bride for himself. He is truly merciful and gracious. Additionally, or in one sense, as an explanation of God's mercy and grace, he says the Lord is slow to anger. He suffers long. It, it takes him a long time that he is slow in his wrath. It waits. It is patient. It endures. And unfortunately, so many people interpret the long-suffering nature of God, the slow to anger part of God, they interpret that to mean that God has given permission to the way that they live in this life and in this world, but it's to be interpreted and defined in no such way. God's anger exists. His wrath is real. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are born as children of wrath under the wrath of God. However, he is slow to express it. A day is coming where his wrath will be revealed. The cup of the winepress of his wrath will be released. And those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus will be given over to the wrath of God. 
but his nature is that of being slow to anger. Additionally, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Aren't you thankful for this God? You know, a God who, when it's difficult to find anyone who will abound in anything, let alone steadfast love, love that is consistent and constant and ever faithful, that we have a God in heaven who operates in this way, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he says there, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 will record it this way, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations. And he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, we learn in verse 7. But then after listing all of these wonderful, what we would consider the positive attributes, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, on and on forgiving, keeping steadfast love, he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, there is another part of God's identity that must be not only remembered, and I think sometimes we speak of this, the, the holiness of God, the justice of God. We think of it as something worth remembering. We say things like, God is love, but remember, he is also holy. As if these aren't beautiful parts of who God is as well. It's easy for us to say, oh, his love is beautiful. His grace is beautiful. His mercy is is beautiful, but will we say his justice is beautiful? I think that in one sense, we are to love, adore, and appreciate the justice of God. You know, that mankind is not going to get away with it. You know, the only way to really get away with it, in one sense of the word, is to be covered by the blood of Jesus, to receive the grace and the mercy of God. There's great evil in this world, and I, for one, am so thankful that there is a punishment for sins. I would pray that every man, woman, and child on earth would receive the grace and the mercy of God, and that they'd receive the forgiveness of God, and that they would claim the righteousness of Christ who received the wrath of the Father on their behalf. But it is good that God is a God who does not clear the guilty just with some kind of word or wave of the magic wand. That's impossible. There must be justice. There must be atonement. Sin must be paid for. And wonderfully, for a believer, Jesus Christ has paid for the penalty of our sin. Now, in verse 8, it says, And Moses, in response to this revelation, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Really, the only appropriate response to this disclosure of God's character. He just begins to worship the Lord. And verse 9, he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So Moses again 
begins to pray and cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, please go with us. It's Moses' continued cry and continued prayer. And so wonderful in the New Testament to see the continued promises of Christ to be with us and to go with us. And as we go into all of the world and to make disciples, there he is in our midst. And the lesson that the early disciples needed to learn when they saw Jesus appearing amongst them in his resurrected body and to understand and to know that he is with us just like he's always been with us. He is in our midst. What a wonderful New Testament paradigm and reality. But I love also that Moses in verse 9, you know, he says to the Lord, this is a stiff-necked people. Please go in the midst of us and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Like a good figurehead for the nation, Moses identifies himself with the sin of the people. He says, Lord, I'm not above it. It's not their iniquity. It's not their sin. It's our iniquity. It's our sin. Daniel did this in his prayer to God. Nehemiah would do this in his prayer to God. And here's Moses before either of those men praying in that kind of way before God. God, this is our iniquity. This is our sin. What humility. And he said, verse 10, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall seek the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so God basically declares here in verse 10 that he's about to not make a new covenant with them, but he's about to reinstitute this covenant once again and this is sort of the preamble uh, or the introduction to the terms of this covenant he says in verse 11 and going on he says observe what i command you this day behold i will drive out before you the amorites the canaanites the hittites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites i love god's covenants they begin with what he will do for us Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants, verse 13 of the land, to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall, and now he gives them directions on how to treat the nations inside the promised land. He says, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Now God's major purpose in making these statements to them as he reinstituted this covenant was to protect his people. Idolatry and the worship of pagan false gods would lead them to slavery. They'd begin to intermarry with the nations around them. They would then become enslaved to the nations around them, and they would not be entering into the fullness of the promises that God had for them. So it was to their great blessing for them to be a nation that was wholly devoted to God, a true 
theocracy. But once they worshipped these false gods, they would invite real terror and hardship and difficulty into their nation. It's just the way that it was. And so God gives them a stern warning right up front. Listen, when you go into their land, you cut down their Asherah poles and you tear down their altars and their pillars that they use to worship their gods. Because if you don't, then your men and, and their women are going to intermingle together. They're whoring after their gods. Pretty soon you will whore after their gods and you will be crippled as a nation. Unfortunately, this is exactly how it unfolded in Israel's history. In the book of Judges, especially, you read of an incredibly dark time in their nation when they were crippled time and time again and brought into captivity, sometimes nationally, sometimes tribally, sometimes regionally, as a result of this false worship. Then he says in verse 18, he begins to talk about these different feasts that they were to keep. He says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And so God begins to remind them of these feasts that they would keep as a nation. Now, of course, on this side of the cross, these feasts aren't for believers. But isn't it wonderful to see God instituting these ways in which his people could rest and rejoice over what God had done? I think sometimes we need to remember just to slow down and celebrate what the Lord has done in our lives. And here they had this feast of unleavened bread, which was connected to the Passover originally. Seven days later, they had this feast of unleavened bread. And so that's why God here records both of them together. You know, you give the firstborn in remembrance of the Passover originally. You keep the feast of unleavened bread. They're associated together. Just a beautiful time. Then he reminds them in verse 21 of the need to keep the Sabbath. He says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now, he's going to remind them of some other feasts in the next few verses, but he takes a break in between the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of weeks to tell them and remind them of keeping the Sabbath every seventh day. And it's interesting because he says, you keep the Sabbath on the seventh day, you'll rest. And then he mentions two specific seasons that they must keep the Sabbath. He says in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. There would be those who would say, well, certainly I'll keep the Sabbath, but not during the time of plowing and, and not during the time of harvest. These are intense seasons where surely God will understand if I neglect that Sabbath rest. But he says, no, even during that time, you are to rest. You are to get away. You are to slow down. You are to obey me and honor me by the keeping of that Sabbath. Now, we are under no Sabbath restriction and 
church services and gathering together on Sundays is no replacement for the Sabbath. However, it is a wonderful time every week that we come together as believers. And I do think that it's good, not in a legalistic, harsh kind of way, but in just a general commitment before God to say, this is what I do. Even in the busy times, even in the difficult times, I'm going to press in and cultivate my relationship with the Lord. I'm going to be there for my church and in the church family. And so the Lord goes on in verse 22 and says, You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear. So after mentioning the feast of weeks and the feast of ingathering, he talks about this time that all the males will appear three times a year during these feasts before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will, verse 24, cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. That's a fascinating promise that God was making. He's basically saying, listen, I know that when you leave your land and go to Jerusalem to worship or go to the temple or the tabernacle to worship, you're concerned that a wicked neighbor is going to steal your land or move your landmark or enemies will come. God says no one will covet your land while you are gone from it in order to worship me. Just the supernatural protection of God. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or the sacrifice of the feast or the of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, probably something that was attached to some kind of ancient pagan false god ritual, but the bringing of the first fruits, what is best to the Lord. Now, verse 27, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Moses heard this covenant from God, the requirements that were attached to it, in many ways, the conditional promises and he was there supernaturally 40 days and 40 nights with God. It says that he ate neither bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenants, the Ten Commandments. And when Moses, verse 29, came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So his skin is shining because he's been in fellowship with God. There's been a transformation that has occurred, but Moses doesn't know it. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, notice this in verse 33, he put a veil over his face. And that established a custom. Verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. So he'd take the veil off in front of God. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak 
with him. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that in reading it here in Exodus 34, it appears that Moses would cover his face in order to calm the people down, that it was sort of a courtesy. You didn't want to see the glowing face of Moses for too long, so he would veil his face as a courtesy. But Paul tells us actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 18, that Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, Moses didn't want them to see that the glory on his face was fading. And Paul points that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as a way of telling us or showing us that under the new covenant, there is a glory that does not fade, that a transformation can take place in our lives that is real and legitimate and lasting, unlike the transformation Moses experienced when he met with the Lord. Oh, believer, meet with the Lord. He will transform your life. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.